Welcome to the Flare Build Podcast. Today's guest is Billy Owen from Robinhood. Billy has been running the OS team at Robinhood for the last four and a half years. He founded the iOS platform team two years ago and now runs the full mobile platform. Billy has been driving all aspects of the modernization timeline, including CI improvements, testing of platforms, and now the complete implementation of Bazel. Now over to your hosts, Zach and Tatiana, the co-founders of Flare Build, the first consultancy product-based company focused on Bazel. So in today's conversation, we are talking with Billy Irwin about Robinhood's journey with developer tooling that inevitably led them to Bazel. But before we dive into that conversation, actually, Billy and I wanted to give just a quick intro to frame the conversation in a way that might be useful. And I think this is interesting because... And I'll let Billy, of course, jump in here. But I think that Robinhood's mobile journey to Bazel was not super straightforward in that it wasn't something that was an obvious need up front. And so I'll basically hand it over to Billy at this point to frame it. But I just think that this could be a useful conversation for folks that are a little bit more hesitant or skeptical around Bazel. And I know that you know there's a lot of movement these days with organizational changes that are sort of forcing different tooling onto development teams who, you know, rightfully so in a lot of cases are, are somewhat skeptical. So I just want to make sure we emphasize that part of the journey here before we dive into the convo. So I'll hand it over to Billy to sort of maybe set up the framing. Awesome. Well, first, thank you for having me on. I guess kind of looking at it, you know, it took us probably about a year or two since I think, you know, Basil was kind of always on the back of our mind, but it probably... I'd say it actually took about two years before I say we were finally ready to take the plunge and actually move our build system from Xcode build over to Bazel. I think there's a lot of factors that we've thought about throughout the years, but I think ultimately it really just always came down to two things for us. The main one was, as I think most platform type teams need to always be thinking, is, is this the biggest problem to solve right now? Certainly, even two years ago, we were a large iOS code base. You know, compile times were certainly not, I would say, super fast. But you know, I think we even then had more issues we needed to deal with, especially you know, as we were a fast-growing iOS team. We really wanted to make sure that we had the right infrastructure in place, that we could keep scaling engineers, that we could build things in a safe and performant manner. And I think that at the time, that being able to scale the code base just to more engineers and, and not be shipping bugs. I think was our number one priority. You know, I think the second is part of it was the unknowns of moving to Bazel. You know, it's it's certainly scary to move your tool chain over to something that you know isn't first party support by Apple. But you know, I think the other is one of the common things we've heard is migrating to Bazel is just the beginning. We no longer have a teams at Apple that are really supporting us, right? Like we're kind of supporting ourselves. And I think really making sure that we had the foundations in place at Robinhood. We can do the migration. We're confident we can do it in, in a good way. When also having the foundations in place that you know, as we're owning and maintaining this over the years, that we actually have teams kind of around this. And yeah, I think those were always the two biggest things. I think basically the main thing that's changed in the last two years is one, our build times have certainly become the number one developer problem, especially for iOS engineers. And two, I think as a company, we've just become a bit more mature and we're able to actually build and form teams around this. Right. It makes sense. 
So early on, you saw the adoption of Bazel and probably other teams struggling with it heavily uh, within Robinhood. And of course, that's you know plenty of cause for hesitancy, seeing um, just some of the pain that comes along with it. And then at the same time, yeah, you had other problems to solve. But you know, over the intervening year or two, hopefully you saw the other teams at Robinhood start to have more success with Bazel as well as yourselves sort of able to ramp up a platform team and you know do some of the other prep work you know of course get through all the other more important issues before you know build times became the, the biggest priority great yeah so i'm curious if there are any other factors like maybe externally and like the improved community or anything like that that also helped you make this decision yeah you know i, I think definitely one of the first things i think we did as we really started thinking more about you know is it time to move to basil well, was just talking to members of the community and i think that alone eased a lot of our concerns, you know, realizing that one, a lot of the problems that we anticipated we might run into are kind of already almost solved problems within the Apple and, and Swift rule sets, as well as just we have a community to work with, right? We're not the only people going through this journey and that there is a really, really awesome iOS community out there where, you know, I think a lot of people want to see Bazel becoming more of a you know, easy to use option for iOS development, especially at companies at scale. So knowing that we'd have a lot more people support was, was super, super helpful for us. You know, I, I think also it's probably worth mentioning that I think we always knew Basil was, it was always a matter of when, not if. I think that's always just the tricky thing is you could probably even make the argument that maybe we waited a little bit too long. You know, certainly our build times today are not great. I think especially the last few months, we're really happy we started a few months ago. We didn't, we're not starting today. You know, maybe we could have started three months or six months earlier and things would be in a better place. But I think most things are either you do it too early or too late. I think it's just trying to narrow how early or how late you are is really the goal. Yeah, absolutely. Well, as listeners will find in the upcoming conversation, it sounds like things have gone pretty smooth. So yeah, from a planning and execution perspective, it sounds like you made pretty much most of the right choices. And uh, it sounds like build times aren't great you know, before Basil has rolled out here, but it's not a total disaster either. So yeah, it sounds like all in all pretty well executed. So I think with that, yeah, we'll go ahead and uh, wrap up our little intro segment here and, uh, and get on to the real conversation. Billy, welcome to the uh, the Basil Show. Thank you for having me. Yeah, right on. So today we're talking about the journey that has brought you to a point uh, over at Robinhood where you are midway into adopting Basil. And so contrary to a lot of our other conversations, which are typically taking place fairly close to the end of this journey, you are just getting started. And so I think this is an interesting point in time for us to sync up on all this stuff. So obviously the focus for this conversation is going to be more around really motivation and the decision to get into Bazel. So we can really, I think, drill in there a little bit deeper than we do in our other conversations because we don't have to focus on all the implementation details quite so much. So yeah, with that, I think maybe I'll hand it over to you to sort of paint a picture of the backstory of what brought you to this point. Yeah. So maybe just to give everyone a little deep dive into maybe just who I am and, and maybe a little bit of the background. So uh, I've been an iOS engineer at Robinhood for about four and a half years. You know, joined when we were pretty small, so I was about the second or third full-time iOS engineer. Our code base was actually about four years old when I joined. I think like most startups, the iOS app kind of had a wide range of people working on it in the early days, but kind of I was probably one of the second or third full-time hires to actually just work on the app. Over the last four and a half years, we've scaled the team to 
We're just about 50 iOS engineers now, pushing probably about two to two and a half million lines of code. And, you know, for the last two years or so, I kind of have broken off from product development and really started been founding a lot of our more platform teams. And, you know, one of my main focuses has just been keeping the iOS engineers as productive as possible. So, you know, this journey started about two years ago. I think at that time, you're probably around 20 iOS engineers. And I think at that point, it was just becoming pretty clear that having a few people part-time, you know, maintaining our infra, our build tools, our CI was just not a viable option anymore. And we kind of need someone to really think about it much more full-time. I'd say the classic story of what the biggest battle we've had the last two years is build times. I think most large iOS shops that kind of get to our size quickly realize how big of a problem this can be for developer productivity. So, you know, I think even two years ago, Bazel was obviously, I think at that point, starting to gain a bit more, you know, widespread adoption within the large iOS shops. And it's actually even Robinhood itself was really starting to explore Bazel for a lot of our like backend and data systems. Especially for, you know, we're a big Python and Go shop. So at that point, you know, Bazel's the path to migrating Python and, and Go to Bazel is, is pretty like well-defined. Personally, I was a little hesitant at the time to move to Bazel, mostly because I've heard the horror, or not, I, I, sorry, not horror stories, but uh, <laughs> I've heard how hands-on not only the migration is, but kind of what the, the long-term maintenance, you know, it's like every mm-hmm. time Apple releases a new version of Xcode, it's like, all right, well, things are going to break. Because, you know, a lot of the Bazel stuff is just kind of guessing where Xcode wants to see a file placed. So I think at that time, I'd say our build times were a problem. But I felt like ripping the Band-Aid off at that time to moving to Bazel may have been almost overkill for how large the problem was at the time. And there's probably other things we could do for a while to kind of keep build times at a manageable level. But I definitely would say probably starting about five to six months ago, it was starting to become really clear that there's not a lot of low-hanging fruit left. I think we were prepared to start making more drastic changes and Bazel seemed like the obvious path forward. Yeah, totally understandable. Before you decided that Bazel was really the only way out, can you run me through some of the other items that your team worked on sort of before you got there? Yeah, for sure. I'd love to say this was like a grand vision, but yeah, I think one thing that we did really early that helped a lot was we pretty early adopted using Xcogen for our project. Actually, yeah, like classic small startup. Uh, I think someone at one point just like slacked it being like, oh, this looks cool. And then randomly we come in next Monday and one of our engineers had just done it and just moved our whole project over to it. And I think we started it for the obvious reason, which was even when we were like only four or five engineers dealing with Xcode projects was already becoming a huge hassle for us. And I think every iOS team that has more than three or four people, you start to get really good at how to rebase and deal with merge conflicts. And I think mm-hmm. it seemed easy enough for us to move. And I think the real value that we ended up seeing was when you just have simple ways to kind of codify your project structure, it became really, really easy to just build our own tooling. It wasn't, you know, we moved to Xcode Proj and then we realized like, wow, it's maybe half a day of work to write a Python script that we can just generate new modules whenever we need to. And I think that kind of unlocked, I'd say, what was our real first stage of modularization of our code base. When we realized, you know, it's really, really easy now for us to, you know, when I joined, we kind of had the original mono target of like, you know, it's just the Robinhood app mm-hmm. and all of our code was in one target. Then we kind of started this, you know, really, I'd say it was like a two year long journey of this was probably our first step 
of dealing with compile times was just slowly modularizing the app. You know, I think mm-hmm. we started with you know probably your classic utils module, your UI module, and I think that just grew and grew and grew over time. And probably the really first project I did when I took on this new role as uh, more of a platform engineer was, you know, I think we had gotten a really good place that when you're adding new code, we were really good about putting it in new modules. But, you know, we still had this monolithic 3,000 file, you know, probably pushing a few hundred thousand lines of code, Robin and target. And, you know, at the end of the day, everything has to compile before it. And then you have this huge chunk that's taking two to three, you know, sometimes even like four to five minutes, depending on, you know, the CPU, your computer. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that was actually the, really the first thing I did was figure out how do we actually break this up? I think we were able to break it up into almost 30 or 40 different modules. And right off the bat, I think that unlocked two things. One, our compile times already, you know, we were able to do kind of utilize the CPUs and multiple cores on our machines way more to actually paralyze our compilation. Mm-hmm. The other thing is we started adopting this idea of, well, we called them playgrounds. This was actually mm-hmm. before Swift playgrounds became a thing. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. So we actually, we never actually changed the name, but you know, yeah, really, we kept on. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I think most computer programming terms these days get overloaded really fast. But yeah, you know, really the whole idea of it was we kind of just made a really, really lightweight stripped down base version of the actual app. And the idea was you could just embed any vertical feature in it. So, you know, really one of the ways we thought about we're modular our code base, we kind of had two ways to think about it. One was kind of the more upstream, I'd say like horizontal layers. You know, you have your utils, your models, your core UI, you know, your analytics, you know, things that are just used kind of universally across all your features. Um, but then we really tried to then take the large chunks of actual product code and really vertically segment it. So, you know, for Robinhood, you know, for instance, we might have an equities trading target we might have an options trading target. We'll have a ACH target, you know, for like transferring money in and out. We'll have a login target, you know, just really trying to think vertically. And then what we did is we made it that you could embed any of those more vertical features kind of in a maybe like slightly stripped down, but just with the really underlying info you, you actually needed for each feature. I mean, really the, you know, the name of the game was get developers to compile the least amount of code possible. Right. You know, and I think that was something we've iterated a lot on over the years. I mean, you know, we then realized that another really big developer woe we started realizing is when you just open up the Xcode project, developers' computers would just freeze for 30 seconds because you know, we're loading so much code. This is actually, I've now learned that a lot of companies do this. I think most call it a focused project. Yeah. But we eventually got to the point that even with Xcogen, it was really, really easy to build tooling on top of that that you could say, hey, I just want to run the you know equities trading feature. And we would really be able to, you know, with just a few lines of code, traverse your entire dependency tree and just say, oh, well, we only actually need to load this code into Xcode even in the first place. And I think that we kind of just kept iterating a little bit on like these types of small things. Really just trying to think about how can we split up your code as much as possible so that you're depending on the least amount of code possible and we can paralyze try to utilize your cores as much as possible for parallelization and just load the least amount of code possible as ever we need into Xcode. So that was the main thing we did, I'd say, for for local development. On CI, at the time I kind of took over our CI, you're actually still using Circle CI. And I think the obvious thing we did then was just get off of VMs and we actually moved to bare metal which was really good timing because right around when I wanted to make this decision, Amazon announces that they now support Max. Mm-hmm. And so 
Obviously, our security team was thrilled that we could actually have our CI machines in the same VPC as the rest of Robinhood. So it didn't take a lot of convincing for us to say, why don't we give this a shot? So we moved basically to bare metal machines. I think at that time, so this was almost two years ago, our CI times were pushing about 30 minutes to actually mm-hmm. build and run all of our tests. We actually went almost immediately down to 12 minutes, just <laughs> moving to like the AWS bare metal machines. So that mm-hmm. was just, uh, yeah, obviously it took a little bit of work to kind of go to self-managed machines. I mean, you have to, you know, maintain our own, own images and there's obviously extra costs on top of that versus just, you know, circle CI, you just have a YAML file in your code base and everything just kind of magically works. But the immediate gains were, were, were fantastic. So that's great. Great overview. So definitely want to drill in a bit on some of that stuff. So it sounds like you did a lot of the work getting the developer experience really nailed down before throwing Bazel into the mix, which I like. You know, a lot of times the Bazel efforts might also coincide pretty heavily with some of the other items as well, which of course makes the, the transition a little bit more of a challenge. But in particular, the Xcode Gen work that you did super early on, that's obviously lays the groundwork for moving to Bazel, I think, in a way that is sort of easier than coming from other tools per se, because you've already got a structured, sort of clearly defined set of you know, schema defining your, your build. So I definitely want to talk about how that sets you up for success. Before we move on, though, I think definitely... Also, I want to touch a little bit on the, like the focused projects, like sort of playground stuff. So... You said initially the playgrounds were really more about, I guess, at runtime, you know, just easily grouping together, you know, just the set of targets to run them. I I guess I'm kind of curious, like, I know there was probably some work, even just getting all that to work with switching probably like your linking mode and and stuff like that. That's a, a common theme. And I want to drill in a little, I think a little bit there. Like, what were your startup times like? And before you moving over to Bazel, did you like make a big change of moving like from dynamic to static linking, like a lot of folks tend to do when they become worried about startup times at scale? Or is that something that you've done a deep dive into? A little bit. We've had been pretty good about measuring cold start time for the last year or two. And shocking, I guess not like shockingly, but we, you know, the metrics actually always been pretty good for us. So kind of said earlier, we kind of thought about modularization in two ways. When we first started doing it, we made basically all those like vertical features. Those were actually always static. So we always made those static libs, but a lot of our horizontal ones were uh, dynamic. So I think that helped with our cold start, at least in the beginning, because we had maybe 30 to 40 dynamically linked, but then maybe another 40 statically linked. So I think that helped a bit. At the moment, we're only really in the US, so we haven't been super worried about bundle size. So, you know, I think that's been kind of a nice thing to fall back on that we could statically link a lot of things and not really worry about overloading the bundle. We actually did recently, actually before we started the Bazel migration, because we had actually heard from from a lot of people in the industry that moving everything to statically link will actually help a lot with the Bazel migration. So we had kind of decided to make that change and just measure to see what happened. You know, obviously we did get a nice little decrease in our cold start time. It actually wasn't super significant. It was like more like 10 to 20%, which, you know, given it wasn't super long, it was only like one or two seconds to start. We didn't really see any like noticeable improvements, but you know, it's so nice to always have. And then, you know, we didn't have too much of a bundle size increase either. So luckily that all kind of just worked for us pretty well. Some of that maybe we lucked into a little bit. <laughs> the other just, yeah, just kind of happened. Mm-hmm. Sure. And so other than the build times, like, were there any other limits you felt like you were starting to hit with Xcogen and the various project and build tooling at that point? 
Yeah, I think something you kind of hinted on, we've always tried to keep our Xcode gen, you know, like, so Xcode gen has this whole idea of a template. And you can kind of, you know, so basically for a different type of modules, we had different predefined templates and then, you know, defining a module is almost just like filling out the fields in the template. We definitely did start to find that I'd say templates feel a little bit more like object-oriented programming in some way, where it almost feels like you're just continuously subclassing. And I think as our project really scaled and, you know, we started having more and more developers and it starts to get a little bit harder to almost control what everyone's doing and, you know, people might go and start doing more like one-off and ad hoc things to, to kind of cover their use case. It definitely started becoming a bit more of a nightmare to maintain all the templates to kind of keep everything working and or when you needed to make larger changes, it could kind of start to become a nightmare. So I think that was certainly one thing that's become a bit of, uh, I, I think from from our side of things, as we're trying to kind of keep our code base like clean, you know, as idiomatic as possible, that definitely started to become a bit of a developer burden for us. But I think, you know, I do ultimately think build times was really the was the defining factor in when we, you know, we were like, all right, it's it's really time to start considering Bazel. Great. So you adopted faster CI solution on bare metal that got you down to 12 minutes for your end to end test times, I guess, too. Is that, is that the number? Yeah, pretty much. Mm. Although I will admit that was a very short lived number. <laughs> right. That's exactly what I want to ask. How long did that last? And, uh, yeah, just maybe walk us through like what that looked like. Uh, cause I think that probably the, the move to metal coincided with a big growth phase probably for Robinhood, right? So I, yeah. I guess those times probably exploded pretty quick, huh? Yeah, so probably the last year and a half, we've gone from about 20 to 22 engineers to about 50. And I think, yeah, so I got our CRI times down to about 12 minutes. I think it took us about another year to get back to 20, which I thought was acceptable. I, you know, I think in my head, I've always kind of kept the magic number 30 as, you know, I'd love to stay under 30, but I think 30 is, you know, it's not great. But I don't think it's going to hold productivity. If you know, like if we're under 30, there's probably more impactful things that you know I could always be working on. But then we notice a trend of so it took about a year or six months to get go up eight minutes. Then it took us two months to go up the next eight minutes. Oh shit. <laughs> uh, yeah. yeah, yeah. It just it's to be expected. You know, you don't really think about it, but then you know, you kind of just start doing a little uh diving deep into your Git history. And you realize that, you know, we were literally hitting almost exponential curve in, in commits to the repo. You know, yeah. if I would say like, all right, I'm going to go back a thousand commits. That gets me back two months. Like, all right, I'll go back another thousand commits. Well, now I'm going back eight months. <laughs> and like, right. oh, another thousand commits. And, and yeah, you know, I, I think that was kind of an eye-opening thing to me when I really realized that when I joined the code base about a hundred thousand lines of code, it probably took us another year to get 250,000 lines of code. And the next thing you know, a year later, around a million lines of code. And then a year later, at 2 million lines of code, and you're like, all right, mm-hmm. well, this is clearly going up. And I think that that's for a lot of reasons. You know, you know, one is certainly just adding more and more people to, to contributing to the code base. I think another thing that we didn't think about as much is, you know, I think as you build out more sophisticated infrastructure in your code base itself, it tends to actually just be more code. You know, even if you think about the classic MVC to either MVVM or we kind of have this hybrid MVVM Viper model mm-hmm. that we kind of came up with a few years ago, but you start start even thinking about to do the same thing, you just have more code, which mm-hmm. isn't bad. You know, it's better separation of concerns. I think it's much easier to navigate a large code base sometimes when even if there's more code, it's it's more clear what everything in the code base is doing. All this kind of adds up. And it was about four or five months ago, 
when, you know, at this point, you know, we've hired a few extra engineers, you know, we're, we're actually looking more like a team in the platform world rather than, uh, at least on iOS, just me. Mm-hmm. And we're kind of looking at some dashboards and I think we're starting to have a lot more candid discussions about, you know, I think like the first thing we always tried to say was, is there something we could do other than Basil? Right. I think that's kind of always the, the starting point whenever we have these type of conversations we want to start up, mostly because, you know, we just know that Basil is going to be a large migration. You know, we're going to have to make sure we have a team around it to maintain and upkeep it. And I think we've always known it's where we're going to end up. I think it was always just a question of when we were there. But I think that was really when we saw that radical increase in CI time when we're like, wow. We don't really have an answer for this one. I think like, you know, for the last year or two, we always kind of had some extra little thing to look into that we'd be able to cut off a minute or two or, or you know, kind of delay the growth. I think this was the first time where we're really just like, wow, there's probably nothing we can do with this one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's great. We talk a lot about some of the motivations for Basil sort of in the across the industry. And yeah, like there's actually a, a white paper out of Google that talks about how you know, it definitely at Google and the same is true probably at a lot of other companies. The amount of compute time or resources it takes to build a project is just the quadratic function of the number of lines of code and the, the headcount mm-hmm. of engineers. So yeah, you're basically always looking at this exponential growth of whether it's times or if you can run the things in parallel, the cost yeah. of, of, of running that test suite. And unfortunately, especially with iOS, you know, we've got these monolithic app targets that are in the end, they need to be linked and then tested. So there's always going to be a bottleneck in the graph, even if you do find a little bit of parallelization there. Right. So always hit bottlenecks. <laughs> yeah. You know, of course, the thing about Bazel that allows it to change that math is, of course, the caching. And you know, parallel execution remotely is also great, but it's really about caching those components that you've already done all that work of splitting up all the targets. And this allows mm-hmm. us, you know, of course, to more effectively cache it and have some avoidance of both builds and, and tests there. That's yeah, that's what changes that growth curve. Great. So at this point, CI times are just going up by eight, 10 minutes a month, it looks like. Yeah, you could see the trend, I'm sure. I think the choice starts to make a little bit more sense. So you mentioned you knew up front that, yeah, it's going to be a decent amount of effort. You're going to need a team to sort of maintain it. I guess I'm kind of curious, like, what did it look like getting the rest of the developers on board? Because this is going to change like their day-to-day to some extent as well, right? Because now application engineers are going to need to interface with the build graph a little bit, whether through build files yeah. or, or whatever. So well, I guess, how did you sell this to the team? Yeah, great question. Shockingly, it was incredibly easy to sell this to the team. I was like, I think this is going to make local build times way faster. And everyone's like, go, please do this. Mm-hmm. I think part of it was, I, I think most of our engineers are already pretty comfortable with editing, you know, because like, most own their Xcogen YAML files. And like, even though we've kind of made a lot of templates and made it easy as possible, I think the idea of, owning your project setup being in a config file, I think everyone was already pretty comfortable with. You know, most engineers who joined Robinhood, it's just always been there. So it's always just been kind of, you know, part of their day-to-day flows. You know, I think the biggest thing that we always try to do with these types of stuff is just set expectations. You know, the first thing we told everyone was, we're going to move to Basil. We can't even tell you how long this is going to take right now. Actually, the very first thing myself and another iOS engineer did is we just told everyone, we're, we're going to take two or three weeks and we're just going to go experiment and you know like i'm just gonna start with a hello world app right and like actually do it 
at this point, I've done some stuff with Bazel in, in other parts of the Robinhood code bases, you know, mostly with Python and Go. So I at least understood the bare basics of how Bazel works and operates. I think, you know, just how that translates to iOS development was what I wanted to get better kind of grasp on. I think from all perspectives, it wasn't much of a hard sell at this point. You know, I think for most of the iOS developers, all I had to do was say, this might radically speed up build times. And everyone was on board for a lot of leadership at the company. You know, I think Robinhood as an engine has already moving in this basal direction. So I think the idea of just even getting iOS more in line with the greater Robinhood engineering ecosystem was already like a big sell. You know, one mm-hmm. thing that we didn't have to think about was our remote cache because we already had a remote cache at Robinhood set up. Mm-hmm. So we were just mm-hmm. able to leverage that. So yeah, shockingly uh, easy sell. This was one of the rare times when, you know, I think one of the hardest things about being kind of on the platform side is really trying to figure out what is the most impactful thing to work on. And I think this is one of those rare times where it was just so obvious what to do that, you know, I didn't even have to spend, you know, weeks to months drafting proposals or roadmaps. I was like, we're just going to move to Basel and get our remote build cache. And everyone's like, go for it. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. And so before we dive in super deep into, yeah, what the transition and planning and stuff looks like for that. I actually want to drill in a little bit deeper on another thing that you're probably aware of is a little bit of a gotcha in Bazel iOS, and that is mixed source modules where you've mixed Objective-C mm-hmm. and Swift. So yeah. this comes up inevitably in every conversation that we have about <laughs> iOS and Bazel because it's sort of one of those rough edges. So maybe tell me a little bit about the state of Objective-C within the Robinhood app during this timeline that we've talked through so far. Yeah. So when I joined, I think our code is about 50-50, Objective-C Swift. And then you know, obviously, for like two or three years, we pretty much didn't add any Objective-C to the code base. So you know, even just by natural code growth and small refactors here and there, I think about a year ago, we were about 90% Swift and 10% Objective-C. Semi, because I knew we were going to move to Bazel at some point, and semi because I'd heard enough developers complain about Objective C. Actually, it's one thing that's crazy. You know, like I, you know, when I started, I've been doing iOS for almost ten years. You know, I did Objective C for you know six, probably like six years primarily, and now realizing that half the iOS engineers on our team had never even written a line of Objective C before joining Robinhood. You know, we tried last year, kind of doing you know a more community-driven effort around just getting rid of Objective C in our code base. You know, I think these types of efforts are certainly always interesting because, you know, even though we had 35, 40 iOS engineers at the time, you know, most of the engineers are on their own vertical product team with their own roadmap and priorities. I think this is always an interesting experiment at companies of how do you kind of get this horizontal community to kind of achieve, you know, a co-base wide effort, even though everyone's mm-hmm. got their own teams, their own roadmaps. But, you know, luckily one of our engineers did a really, really good job putting together a plan of how to go about this how to, you know, kind of make tasks super chunk-sized and achievable. And actually, by the time we started the Bazel migration, we only had like 20 Objective-C files left in the code base. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I did actually, before we did anything, I did at least move all the Objective-C files to their own module. Basically, everyone was like, if you can do it, just take a week or two and get rid of, you know, at least separate Objective-C and Swift. So I followed that advice. And very happy I did because <laughs> it was not actually that much work to do that and mm-hmm. can tell how much work it would have been the other way around. Yeah. And it's just slower with or without Bazel, right? Because you've got sort of compiler within compiler inception going yep. on and it's just, yeah, it's just slower. So yeah, that's awesome. I mean, I think 
that's a luxury of being a newer company, right? Like a lot of folks with a lot more objective C, they're stuck with it for better or worse. And yeah, it's pretty awesome to just sort of over time, yeah, like kind of moved away from it. But yeah, I share your, I think your, your length of, you know, employment in the iOS community for sure. And so yeah, it's, it's wild to see like the, Newer devs just, yeah, don't, they don't touch Objective C. The thing really came and went, man, I guess. But yeah, nowadays it's uh, definitely interesting. All right. Well, yeah. So I think at this point we've laid the groundwork pretty well. I think we understand sort of where you're coming from, you know, what your motivations were. Like you said, you've exhausted most of the low hanging fruit at this point. I think any of the other optimizations you might be looking at would be probably a lot more additional technical complexity. But then at the end of the day, like you're still sort of stuck with the standard tooling the standard build tools. And maybe if you could start moving away from some of those, move to something, some different linkers or something like that. But then you're really pushing it because you're you're sort of like hacking into you know the tool chain without really like a clearly defined way of doing that. Right. So that's mm-hmm. obviously what tools like Basil offer is sort of an, an idiomatic way to start doing more advanced things and managing your tool chains, you know, manually and stuff. But short of going there, I feel like it's you're getting into even more dangerous territory if you just start trying to make other like sort of hand tuned manual optimizations that it just becomes really brittle. So it makes sense you didn't really go super deep there. Um so other than Basil, I'm, I'm curious, did you look at any of the other alternative tools? So obviously Buck, uh, in years past at least, is definitely something that you know the IS community has gotten some value out of. Is that something that was ever evaluated or on your roadmap at all? Not to the point that we actually tried to build any MVPs or anything like that. I think obviously the scariest part about this type of migration is you're kind of decoupling yourself from Apple and, you know, which is definitely the, the scariest part. Right. And I think really what we just did is we just talked it, you know, like we're not really solving a, a new problem. There's so many people, so many companies and teams before us that have had to go through the same experience. So we really just said, let's just talk to them. And, you know, we don't need to reinvent the wheel. You know, I don't even think we need to reinvent the the research. Like if other people have kind of evaluated both, I think we can trust each other and go with their approach. It just seems like Basil's been the clear winner, especially the last two or three years. Even if you just look at the rule sets for like Rules Apple and Rules Swift, like commits to them every single day. They're super well-maintained. I'm super fortunate that both through a close friends from you know college and uh, actually through someone who joined Robinhood within the last year. I've been able to talk with Keith a lot, who I know has been on this podcast before. He's kind of the official maintainer of, of Rules Apple and Rules Swift. So you know, I really just had, had a lot of chats with him. I was like, what should we do? And you know, it, mm-hmm. it just seemed like Basil is the pretty clear path. So we didn't do too much exploration into other things. Yeah. Uh-huh. Makes sense. Yeah. I mean, given the point in time at which you started looking into this, I think it makes sense. Buck was, I think, seen as more of a viable competitor maybe a couple of years back when Basil was really lacking a lot of its iOS support. And yeah, all that great work that the community has done the last few years has, I think, really made a big difference. Yeah. So at this point, I guess we can dive into, yeah, like what the transition over to Basil has looked like so far. So picking up where we left off on the timeline, you know, you see that continued exponential growth of CI times. You decide to, okay, you know, we're prototyping this out, build some hello world apps, an understanding of, you know, what the tooling looks like. Maybe take us from there. Like, yeah, what were your next steps in terms of actually, you know, planning and executing? So the good news is, I'd say our code base was pretty primed to do this type of migration. Like we're already using Xcogen with 
pretty as well-structured templates as we can. You know, most of our modules are pretty idiomatic. There's like, they all kind of follow the same pattern. I did spend like one or two weeks in the very beginning getting all the objective C into their own targets. So I feel like we're in a really good place to go. The first thing we really did actually is I actually wrote some scripts to basically take all of our Xcode YAML files and spit out build files and just kind of see what happened. And, you know, super fortunately, you know, a lot of our modules just kind of worked. You know, I could, I could build them. I could run all the tests. Things were actually going super well. So we actually pretty quickly in almost like one or two weeks, we had almost most of our, I'd say like, we call them like our core libraries fully running, building and testing with Bazel. So that was kind of the, the first step. Then obviously we start hitting some stacks because even though we had moved objective C out of the code base, you definitely start running into some issues even when you have to like mix obj libraries and Swift libraries. We had a lot of fun with header maps and figuring out how to make sure all the right things were included with the Bazel pass. We did have to start doing some things around like objective C imports and header files. And you know, if you're compiling with Bazel, we would say use this path. If not, use uh, kind of like the standard framework header. But I think that was our first goal is can we basically get all of our library targets to just build, compile, and test? And then once kind of we got there, then we kind of said, all right, let's move on to all the feature stuff. And you know, really what we were doing is you know, we were almost taking every template we had with Xcogen and we turned that into a macro. And I think we kind of just started working down the tree. I like, had this big spreadsheet with like every single module being like, does it compile? Does it run test? And you know, we kind of just started, you know, we were trying to get to a point where we could almost like divvy up and conquer. And once we kind of got a good handle on that, the next thing we wanted to do was try to get something working as end to end as possible. You know, like basically we knew going into this, the hardest part, libraries up and running, we're like, all right, we'll be able to get this to work on CI, right? Like CI is just, you basically run some command line tools, get the tests, parse mm. results, upload, you know, so we kind of punted that for a little bit. My strategy, a lot of this stuff has always been whenever you do these type of migrations, try to tackle the hardest thing as early as possible because that's where all the hiccups are going to be and you might as well just figure it out. So we kind of wanted to try something more fully working, but on maybe a slightly smaller scale. So we actually have a Swift CLI tool that you know we've been developing in-house. You know, it handles a lot of our scripts for around CI, project generation. You got to name it. Like it itself has become like, a pretty large Swiss army knife over the last two years. So we figured like this would be a really interesting thing to kind of do full stack, right? Like, can we get to the point where you're managed deploying? We might even distribute it with the remote build cache, you know, kind of all that stuff. So we kind of started thinking about like how that would work. So we started with CI and tried to say, you know, we have like this thing has its own set of unit tests for like, what if we just run these with Bazel first? So we kind of figured out how to do that. Actually, around this time too, we've been talking to Keith a lot about well development because we're like, we know this is gonna be the hardest part. We had played around with Tulsi and XC Hammer, which, you know, if just from a Google search seemed like the two most leading open source things for local development. We kind of had issues with both of them. Well, XC Hammer, we couldn't even get to work out of the box with like a Hello World project. And then we kind of have learned that even Pinterest who came up with it, I don't know if they're fully using it anymore, or at least it seems like it was pretty opinionated to their setup. Yeah, it's fallen out of date a little bit. Let's put it that way. Yeah. 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 And even Tulsi, Tulsi was working. But we definitely still had some weird hiccups with it. And then basically, you know, we were talking to Keith and it seems like a lot of companies have kind of gone with the, you basically generate an Xcode gen project from your build files. And then mm-hmm. you're, you're essentially just overriding build scripts to then use Bazel underneath the hood. And then you kind mm-hmm. of do all this magic voodoo to then move things out of the Bazel artifacts into where Xcode expects them. Mm-hmm. 
But then we actually got an intro to Brentley, who you know has done a lot of open source Bazel work over the years, and like he was actually saying, you know, he's kind of implemented this now twice. You know, he helped keep build that lift. He did add Target, and he's like, I kind of want to do my own open source one. So we were like, mm-hmm. we love really early adopters. <laughs> so we've actually mm-hmm. been working with him a lot. You know, we yeah. actually have some MVPs of it already working with our code base. So, you know, that was actually a super just kind of fortunate coincidence <laughs> that this all worked out in parallel. But, you know, when we realized that the Xcode path was kind of going to be also something to work on, you know, it kind of also gave us the idea of, you know, we didn't want to really live in this world of having build files and Xcode YAML files in our code base, especially around, you know, maintenance. So we were like, well, we can probably help out some of this. And we actually decided to, why don't we just write at least the YAML generator, right? You know, we have build files, it's easy to parse them. You know, we can just use the Bazel query CLI to get whatever we need. And probably like one of the first full steps that we like fully committed to our repo was we basically got to the point where we could regenerate our entire Xcode project from build files, you know, translate them to YAML files, and then we actually just delete all the YAML files. That was like probably the first developer change we did is, you know, we basically told everyone YAML files are gone. We're now going to have build files. Fortunately, I'd say the developer flow, if you need to edit one, it's basically the exact same thing. So, you know, there wasn't much, I wouldn't say there's much of a learning curve and we kind of brought everyone through what a build file is and like, you know, what the the similarities were. But yeah, that was probably the first big, like made something Bazel related load bearing in our code base. Yeah, gotcha. Yeah, it's it's unfortunate that literally I think everyone has written a build file to (laughs) uh, Xcode or Gen YAML file to at this point. And I know there's a few folks that have talked about open sourcing it, but there's some hesitance there just because it will quickly become abandonware because it's sort of a stepping stone in a lot of cases, right? Yeah. And so, yeah, <laughs> but someone should probably do it just so uh, we save ourselves at least a few weeks every time for every adoption here. Uh, I think it's it's interesting that the, the timing for you coincided with Brentley's release of a new project generator. I think that Another option for folks that sort of works a little bit different than Tulsi out of the box is Rules iOS. And I'm curious if you looked mm-hmm. at all at Project Generator that's in Rules iOS, because it sort of has some of that functionality already as well. Is that something that you evaluated at all? We did a little bit. We had gotten a little bit of guidance around trying to stay with Rules Swift and Rules Apple as much as possible a little early on from some people mm-hmm. in the community and in the migration. I think generally our good rule of thumb is the least amount of dependencies is usually a good idea. Uh-huh. So I think that was kind of our goal was, you know, just to try to stick with rules Apple and rules Swift as much, you know, and then we, we've definitely had to dip into rules iOS a little bit here and there, but I think we've generally tried to avoid it. But I think we would have gone a lot deeper into exploring it if it wasn't for kind of, I guess the chance of our timing kind of working really well at Brentley. You know, even when I remember Brentley kind of brought it up in some of uh, community chats, it seemed like there was pretty eager, like, this sounds great, which kind of, I think, was in it itself a bit of a, a good, you know, okay, maybe everything that exists today isn't that great. <laughs> so maybe we should just go with the one that everyone seems super excited about. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think also we have a little bandwidth to be a bit more on the bleeding edge just because, you know, we're not. Not, nothing is actually developer facing at the moment. So we have a little bit more, you know, we can take some risks in, you yeah. know, especially if we think something has a lot of promise. And if, you know, we think there's something that we're going to be able to in our ourselves, you know, influence and kind of like, you know, help, you know, be part mm-hmm. of it from the ground up. And I think having a bit more, you know, understanding actually how it works, I think is a huge thing for all of us. You know, not just like using something and magically trusting because, you know, the second something doesn't work, 
oh, now it's going to take me five days to debug why this doesn't work. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And I think because you had already done some of that work in demixing, you weren't struck with, oh, we have to go use rules iOS or write our own rules, right? I think that's kind of for a lot of the folks in the community, like some of the stuff that lives in rules iOS, like they can't really live without it other than committing to writing and maintaining a lot of code because you've just got to deal with those mixed source modules. So yeah, without, I think without that background motivation of to even get the build working, Having to already have brought in that rule set, I think, yeah, you're set up in a good place to think about other things, right? Just, yeah, and I share your opinion on avoiding the extra dependencies where possible. Yeah, that's great. So I think another interesting anecdote is just that, you know, we just spoke with another company. That episode will be coming out soon, actually. And they're probably only a few months ahead of you, but just that few months for them was enough. They went the full uh, rules iOS route mm-hmm. and they're, they're pretty stoked about it. So yeah, it's funny that the difference a couple months can make on that front is, uh, going to say, you know, I have a little bit of concern about there's a kind of explosion of options. And I feel like we're fragmenting ourselves a bit much in the community. So I hope we can sort of sort some of that out. But at the same time, like that's it's super encouraging to see how much interest there is. And like the fact that a lot of folks from a lot of different companies are jumping into like, yeah, just making Bazel for iOS work super great. So yeah, it's, it's exciting to see that. And even Rules iOS, I think that Jerry is putting a lot of additional effort into that project again now. And there's there's some pretty interesting features there that I actually want to drill in on a little bit. Some of those features, because I think there's a few other items that we actually haven't really gotten to at all yet. So something that we didn't talk about at all, which we probably should have covered earlier, like what is the state of third-party dependencies within Robinhood? Mm. What does all that look like sort of before? And what is that going to look like under Bazel? Yeah, we've definitely had an interesting story on third-party dependencies. We, you know, we've mostly been using Carthage, although obviously we've accumulated enough third-party dependencies over the years that we have a few different ways that we handle third-party dependencies or code base. You know, I think as much as we can, we just try to use your know, straightforward Carthage. You're know, referencing it, the GitHub uh, repo. You know, with pin to a version. You know, we have some super legacy parts of our code base that are using code that you know we've had to just vendor into our code base specifically because, you know, there's, there's no support even for Carthage or Cocoa Pods anymore. We have some third-party dependencies with partners who have closed source code that didn't even support Carthage. So we actually had to clone it, generate the XE frameworks ourselves, and then we self-host them. And then we use Carthage to basically download those. So certainly has become a lot of different ways to do this over the years. I actually, I think this is one of the things that made me super happy with Bazel is it actually simplified all this. Because at the end of the day, everything can just be an HTTP archive. You know, so what that process kind of looked like for us has just been, we basically define our own set of build files for every third-party dependency. So, you know, definitely there's a little bit of a, you know, an upfront cost that we had to do to define. The good news is that process actually ended up being relatively easy. You know, I think most of our third parties were just either pure Objective-C or, or pure Swift. So all those were pretty straightforward. We definitely had a few interesting ones that, you know, we might have to like define like a C library and then embed that C library in the objective C library. But, you know, I don't think there's any that took us more than like 30 minutes to an hour to, to get built and compiling. So that's definitely been an interesting thing. Maybe one thing that we need to start thinking about sooner rather than later is what updating a dependency looks like now. But you know, at the moment, you'd have to just go into our workspace file and, you know, just manually update the version, the GitHub URL, all that. 
So we might want to simplify some of that in, in the future, maybe build more macros to kind of make it that, you know, just say like repo version number and then we handle everything for you. But um, not too worried. I think like most companies, updating a dependency is usually a little bit of an effort in itself just because we need to be super careful. Obviously, you know, we can't just bump our dependency and then discover, you know, a week later that's causing crashes in production. So, you know, mm-hmm. usually most times we bump dependencies, it's usually kind of a ad hoc effort already. I'm not super worried. It's a little bit harder to bump a dependency in our code base now, but compared to mm-hmm. all the other efforts around bumping a dependency, it's pretty you know trivial. Right. Yeah, it makes sense. Yeah, I think that's actually some of the motivation for some of the other tooling that's out there also is dealing with CocoaPods, right? Because when you've got a CocoaPods project, you have a lot of assumptions about how that code is going to be built and, mm-hmm. and run. And, and that's where, again, I think like, yeah, some of, of course, pod to build in the past and then some of what, Rules iOS also is offering is a solution for CocoaPods based projects. But yeah, again, yeah. You're, if you're not on CocoaPods, then yeah, a little less motivation there. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I was looking at pods to build and I like kind of had some ideas about, oh, I guess we could write a script to, you know, because most of our dependencies we use did have pod specs in the repo. So like, oh, mm-hmm. maybe I can write a script to, you know, download it and then generate it, basically parse the pod spec, generate the build file, and then we'll just copy it into our repo. But I think some of it is almost like a good exercise to kind of define build files by hand for mm-hmm. code bases. And it obviously made us kind of better understand, you know, how like C libraries are intermixing with objective C libraries. Like there was some advantage, at least for education purposes, for us mm-hmm. to do some of this stuff by hand and kind of just get gain the experience. Yeah, absolutely. They're good little scoped uh, projects uh, to, to build yeah. with Basil. Okay, cool. Yeah. So I guess at this point, I'm kind of curious what sort of impacts you have seen so far. I know you're, you're still just sort of starting out, but yeah. What, uh, what data can you share with us? Yeah. One I'm really excited about. So actually last week we got building the app and unit testing working on CI, you know, right now, (laughs) actually our build and run unit test step has gotten up to about 45 minutes. You know, and it was about 30 when we started the basal effort. So obviously, you know, that increase we were talking about earlier in the podcast, uh, the trend has continued. So basically, we're running all the tests now twice on CI um, in parallel, and we just make the basal ones non-blocking. And we're just <laughs> notifying my team if, if those ones fail. And we are seeing times anywhere from 12 minutes to basically around where the test, the job is today, to about like 45 minutes. And, you know, obviously, that's pretty much depending just on, you know, what's actually being edited in the the change itself. Right. So I think our median time is actually sub 20. So the good news is, you know, as we kind of expected, most changes developers are doing are a bit lower in the dependency tree. They're mm-hmm. probably on their feature level. So, you know, we're actually not building that much code or not running that many tests. So we're actually hoping in the next week to swap it. We might still run both for another month or two just to mm-hmm. you know, make sure things are working well but we might actually just make Basil the blocking one. And we're actually hoping this is going to give everyone like pretty immediately, like 15 to 20 minutes faster CI times mm-hmm. just overnight. So that is super, super exciting. And you know, like this is basically no optimization. We just are using, you know, we have a remote build cache, but you know, we're not really tinkering with Basil anymore, trying to maximize any anything. You know, we actually still have a fair amount of bottlenecks in our dependency tree. We actually have someone working on some of the modules right now, kind of in parallel. But probably once we're a bit more further along Basil, we'll probably put a more concerted effort. And we had a, a models target 
that every API model is one of that target. Mm-hmm. And shocker, that target is edited a lot because you have now 20 different product teams editing their API models all the time. Mm-hmm. And that mm-hmm. basically invalidates our entire build cache. Yeah, so, absolutely. Because yeah. everything depends on it. So we're going to break all those up into probably like 30 models. You know, we're going to do a bunch of those. So basically, we're expecting that the median is going to keep even going down as we do all this stuff. So mm-hmm. um, super promising early start. You know, like this is kind of like the magic. Of, I, I think it is pretty rare that you do this migration with these promise results and you basically see them day one. So that has been just the first time like someone actually got running and posted the result. We were all like, all right, we may have made the right decision. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. Uh, so yeah, basically 50% or more reduction in the mean P95 or whatever, uh, like kind of right off rip. That's uh, that's awesome. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's amazing. Yeah, I think definitely as you start to refine that a bit more, hopefully, yeah, you get those times down even further. Super yeah. exciting. Yeah, the target granularity is definitely something to sort of be aware of, of course. I'm curious. So for your test framework, sorry, your, like your tests, do you have a lot of integration tests that depend on the main app target? Or have you also done a pretty good job of siloing the, the test suites to sort of be, again, focused on those vertical modules? Yeah, we have three type of tests we really run today. We kind of have, you know, I'd say like your logic unit tests. And yeah, we have, I'd say every target has that type of test target with it. So, you know, we probably have maybe 80 to 100 of those targets kind of sitting around our code base. We recently made a decision to move every, you know, we're, we're actually, we heavily use snapshot tests at Robinhood for the last three mm-hmm. years. And then we actually decided to finally move all snapshot tests to their own separate target. So mm-hmm. a lot of our mop targets then have two test targets. One is for unit tests, pure unit tests. One is for snapshot tests. And mostly that's because we use an, an app host for all of our snapshot tests because we also do a lot of accessibility stuff with some of our snapshot testing. So you need a test host for those. And then we actually do have a lot of integration tests these days. Actually, what I did before Bazel was kind of this long, long journey to see if we can make UI testing diff blocking, which I'm super happy to say we did. And we have about 100 UI tests that run on every single PR at Robinhood now, which has been awesome to see because it's like the promise of these things are so valuable, but they're so hard to run at scale. Um, obviously, they're super slow. We do a lot of different sharding. And actually, part of what I'm thinking about now is what does this look like with Bazel? Because right now, they're actually on one you know, UI test target. That's all the tests. That will not work with Bazel. Because you know, one thing that we need to change is we've always kind of, I think most of our CI infrastructure is always thought of tests as individual tests. Bazel definitely is much more thinks about targets kind of as individual entities. So we're probably going to do a lot of breaking. Well, luckily, it should be relatively straightforward to take that large UI test target. I mean, we can break it into as many test targets as we want, really. But yeah, then we're definitely going to have to do some stuff around thinking about how to leverage the dependency tree and to actually figure out which tests to run. We don't actually have a great answer for that yet, but my hunch is it'll lean somewhere around. We probably can just add artificial depths to a lot of them. You know, so basically if you, we have a bunch of UI tests for like placing an option order. I think it's pretty reasonable to say that we can just make the options target a depth to, you know, even though it's not actually depth to the test runner, we can just say like, all right, well, edit options code and like 
should probably run all the options UI tests, but we don't need to run all the, you know, sign up UI tests. And mm-hmm. so we'll probably try to move to that model. And then maybe we'll even have one or two, like, you know, really, really small, like four or five sets of tests that we just say, like, we're just going to run these on, you know, we'll make them our smoke tests and say, we'll just run these on every diff just to get like a super wide range of stuff. But those will be our most, you know, wide covering and probably our most stable ones. Ones that, you know, we're, we're really, really confident that if these things fail in CI, someone actually broke something with, with the flows. Yeah, so the the benefit you've seen already is even with sort of probably running a bit of redundant tests every time as well. Yeah. That's great. It's great that you've already seen value even with that sort of future uh, optimization still on the table. Cool. So yeah, so I guess uh, at this point, I'm curious how the local development experience is going. So what has changed there and how far have you gone in adopting, you know, allowing local developers to to make use of this fancy new tooling? I think we still have a little ways to go with local development. You know, I'm really happy that we started thinking about that probably about a month ago. So I think our last status update there was we basically can generate get Xcode all set up and completely from our build files. I think now we're really just on the how do we actually use Basil underneath the hood? You know, kind of working with Brentley a little bit on that. Or you know, this is something Brentley is like super experienced with and he's kind of I'd say he's trying to get that version of rules Xcode project out now where it actually starts building with Basil. I think, you know, we might have something we can really start playing around with next week or two. I think then it's probably just going to start thinking about, you know, how do we start integrating this with developers? I think we're probably going to do a lot of opt-in stuff around this. I think one thing I just always want to do is just deliver value to people as fast as possible. And I think I would love to do something like, I don't know, set an environment variable on your computer and we'll start using Bazel as the build system for local development. But, you know, mm-hmm. here are all the warnings. But, right. you know, obviously my hunch with most of this stuff is we'll get to the world where it's working, you know, 80% of the time perfectly. And, you know, 20% of the time we'll have edge cases that we need to fix. But there's mm-hmm. probably still a lot of value in developers using it that 80% of the time when they can. And then we just, you know, always will have an escape escape hatch for, for as long as possible or as long as we mm-hmm. feel like we need to. Yeah, I think you're definitely, as things continue to exponentially increase in time, like eventually, yeah, locally, you're going to have to have Bazel working effectively yeah. to, to allow people yep. to do their, their daily work, even in a focus mode project. So yeah. So yeah. what are your thoughts around using full remote execution to build and, and test your, your app? So obviously, in iOS with Bazel, this is one of the hardest features to unlock. You know, when we're looking at pure Swift, it's a little bit easier, I think. I'm curious what your thoughts are there on how that can impact your project, if at all. I think it's, you know, kind of a whole new dynamic of problems that we need to start thinking about. Right now, we think so much about, you know, how to best utilize the cores on your computer. I think once we start thinking about remote execution, it's going to be a lot more of how do we best rely on network throughput, really, at the end of the day. Like, there's just so much we have to be, you know, removed to remote execution. There's obviously so much that's going back and forth over the network. I think the ideal world, obviously, is that we're using remote execution for everything. At the end of the day, you know, at some point, you know, like if you edit a certain file, like it's going to take 10, 20 minutes to compile the app. Like there's just really, unfortunately, there's just literally nothing we can do about that. It's just the nature mm-hmm. of the game. But there's obviously value in at least being like, make it while you're waiting for that, you can use Slack or Chrome <laughs> right sure. now. Those are like really, I pretty much can't even use either of those apps if I'm compiling the app on my computer. I'd say the long story short is, we're not even there to like start really evaluating that as an option. I think it's mm-hmm. something that we're going to keep in the back of our minds. We definitely want to get local development working for developers. And we think we're in a really good place. It seems like the next logical step is to start at least exploring it and playing around with it. Mm-hmm. But I might have to get back to you on that one. 
Sure. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think it's a fair item to keep pretty far out on the roadmap, uh, especially in mobile. So yeah. And really, I think just getting to using Bazel and sharing that remote cache populated by CI for your developers, that will be really the majority of the speed up. So yeah, I think once you get there, that'll be really uh, when you start to see those big impacts locally. Yeah, you're right. You're right that inevitably there's some big portion of the build graph will eventually have to get built, and that's where obviously the remote executors help. But for the most part, hopefully you're mostly incremental, and the cache is enough there. Yeah, I'm really excited for that that first magical moment we're going to have when a new developer joins. They clone <laughs> the repo, and they just run a simple command. And the app's built, you know, because we'll have a full remote cache it. And, mm-hmm. you know, one minute later, they just have the app running in the simulator on the computer. I think that's yeah. going to be, that's going to be amazing. Yeah, absolutely. Well, yeah, you're making good progress. So what's next on your roadmap? Curious, like, yeah, what are next steps for you uh, at Robinhood? Yeah, I think we're pretty much going to, we're going to, you know, because Brentley is actually doing, you know, so much work, like really for us, you know, some of the local building stuff. And, you know, we think it's probably going to be another week or two before we can have an MVP. So really next week or two, we're, we're going to start doing super focused on getting CI over to Bazel. You know, we think it'll be, we're, we're so close already. It seems like it's going to be an immediate value add to the team and, you know, rapidly cutting down on people's CI time. So, you know, I think we're, we've kind of been heads down on this now for almost, you know, maybe two, two and a half months. So we think it'd be kind of nice to actually have a developer facing win and actually try to deliver that, you know, because especially because, you know, I think the whole thing with local development is it's just so many more unknowns. So mm. as much as we'd oh, love yeah. to say developers can do local development in Basel in a month, I can't promise that. <laughs> so I'd love to get a quick win out to the team. And then I think the second that we get CI migrated, just full heads down straight to local development and uh, whatever we can do to, to speed that up. Yeah, yeah, absolutely makes sense. I guess the one other big thing that is worth drilling in on, like, what were the gotchas that you hit along the way? Like, what, if anything, was sort of like an an unknown that sort of popped out at you during this process? Because I I think that this is definitely one of the areas that a lot of folks are hesitant about. Like, even if you get to a point where you've decided, okay, like, the wins might be worth the overhead of having to maintain build files and all this other stuff. Like in real world projects, of course, there's always unexpected occurrences yep. that were we just didn't plan for. So what, if any, yeah. of those sort of items uh, jumped out at you while you worked on this? Yeah. I mean, even I said a little bit earlier, just getting Objective-C libraries to work depending on Swift libraries and vice versa. There, there certainly were a little gotchas there, especially around figuring out how to kind of tweak the Objective-C build files with all the include paths. That was probably the first main gotcha. Some other things. Actually, one thing we wanted to do was basically have all this CI infrastructure around dealing with XE result bundles. And Bazel, I didn't realize, basically just kind of spits out like this XML file, but it doesn't actually... They have this like... It's like weird where they treat each target as a single test. So the mm-hmm. XML file actually even like the right structure of what you'd expect in XML, at least you know, for mm-hmm. our, our assumptions of how we deal think about tests. So we did need to do a little tweaking to actually get Bazel tests to always output an XE result bundle because basically out of the box, the iOS rule set only will do XE result bundles if there's an app host, mm-hmm. which you know, yeah. we don't want for most of our tests because that leads to its own set of issues with simulators. Mm-hmm. So we had to do a little tweaking there to get it. You know, I, I think in the long run, we don't want we want to remove our dependency on XE result bundles so that we mm-hmm. can rely on logic tests for as much as possible to speed things up. But it seems like, you know, right now that we don't want to rewrite any, you know, we just, we're trying to limit the scope of the migration as much as possible. So sure. getting sure. XE result bundles simplifies a ton of other stuff for us. 
I'd say those were probably the first two. You know, there's certainly always a lot of little things here and there, but you know, I think one of the things actually, maybe this is helpful to listeners is, you know, I basically went into this with, let's just say zero knowledge of Basil. <laughs> you know, I'd even argue that today my knowledge of Basil is still incredibly surface level, but I think something that has been just a huge sense of relief is one, the rule sets, you know, whether it be rule Swift, rules Apple or rules iOS, they're super well featured, super well documented. They do really kind of just work out of the box. You know, maybe you have to do a little tweaking your code base here and there, but you know, mostly it's been pretty smooth. And then even more importantly, you know, I think just the community around iOS engineers are in the Basel world these days. Everyone's been super helpful. Um, you know, I, I think it's been this like huge sense of relief that, you know, really we're all doing the exact same. You know, we kind of all have the same problem of we have these tool chains that we are 100% dependent on that aren't really built to handle the scale that we've all achieved. So, you know, it is kind of this sense of shared problems and, you know, everyone has been, you know, anytime I have a question around like, oh, I'm like getting this issue and I'm not really sure where to go from here. People have been super helpful, whether it's, you know, pointing to GitHub issues on the rule sets where like someone else had brought this problem up or like even just talking about, you know, oh, this is kind of how we dealt with this at, you know, XYZ company. So it's been, yeah, I'd say there's been no gotcha that we haven't been able to figure out either by ourselves or with, you know, the help of the community. Oh, that's amazing to hear. Yeah, we've come a long way. So that, that's, that's <laughs> awesome, man. Very cool. So I think we've pretty much covered everything. So really, thanks a lot for sharing this with us. And yeah, maybe we'll check back in some point to hear how their mobiles are going. Yeah, uh, thank you again so much for having me on. This is great. Cool, thanks. Thank you for tuning in to the Flare Build Podcast. Please like, subscribe, and tune in again with Zach and Tatiana for the next podcast in the series.